0: The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the foreign exchange markets continued to ignore the darkening economic picture here in the United States. The dollar enjoyed, I think, one of its best weekly gains in years. In fact, it's the best, I think, two week gain for the U.S. dollar index since the financial crisis of 2008. And, you know, I keep hearing people talk about, well, you know, we can ignore all this bad economic data because we've got the jobs report, right? The jobs report is strong, right? And so, therefore, the economy must be strong and we can ignore all of the economic data that suggests that the economy is weak. Because, after all, the jobs report says that it's strong. Well, you know, it seems to me, and I've said this before, that the jobs numbers look like the outlier. When all the other data is bad, when all the other data says white and the jobs data says black, why isn't it that people aren't questioning the validity of the jobs numbers and saying let's ignore all the other numbers and just focus on this one because this is the one that we like instead of looking deeper beneath the surface of the one that you like and say, wait a minute, maybe the jobs isn't telling the entire story. When we have all this other data that's coming out so weak, maybe it's the job data that's not painting an accurate picture. Maybe there's something else going on. And I've I've pointed this out many times about what is wrong with the jobs number and why there's a lot more there than what meets the eye, yet people still want to remain fixated on this and and blindly ignore everything else and rationalize it away. For example, yesterday, on Thursday, we got the uh, February retail sales. And remember, everybody is betting on the consumer, right? 70% of the U.S. economy, retail sales, this is supposed to be it. And remember, you know, oil prices are down, gas prices are down. This is supposed to be a big boon For the consumer, because now he's not spending all this money on gas, he's got all this extra money to buy other stuff, right? Clearly, that's going to be reflected in retail sales. That's what everybody was thinking. That's why the forecast was to break the string, right? We had two uh, declines in a row, back-to-back retail sales in December and January were both negative. And the markets were looking for a positive February. The forecast was for a rise of 0.3%, and then X Autos, uh, a rise of 0.5%. Well, that's not what we got. Instead of up 0.3, we got down 06 Right? We had three consecutive months now of declining retail sales. The last time that happened, it was during the Lehman Brothers days, the financial crisis of 2008. That's how far you got to go back to find three consecutive months of declining retail sales. And, you know, this is not the only data point where you have to go back to the financial crisis to find something this bad. And if the economy is supposedly this great, why are we printing numbers that we haven't experienced since the depths of the 2008 financial crisis? That doesn't make sense. And also in the, the uh, retail sales numbers, if you go X autos, right, they were looking for up 0.5, right? stripping out autos, which are now starting to fall as the subprime market is running into trouble in automobile sales. But instead of a half a percent gain, we got a tenth of a percent decline. So even if you strip out gasoline, retail sales went down. And in fact, making it worse, last month, they revised down the retail sales, uh, less autos, to down 1.1. So it was last month was even worse uh, than they initially reported. But even if you strip out gasoline, you take out autos and gas, because after all, gas is cheaper, so certainly consumers are spending less for gas. They were looking for X autos and X gas up five-tenths. Instead, we got down two-tenths. So even though the consumer was saving money on gas, he didn't spend the difference. Because if you take gas out of the equation, retail sales went down. This is a bad number. And in fact, the the dollar finally was lower. On Thursday morning, there was some maybe profit-taking in the dollar short, so there was a little bit of a rally in the euro. Uh, and when this number came out, it didn't fuel the rally. The dollar actually recouped most of what it lost after this bad news came out. You would have thought that this bad news might have taken some of the shine off the dollar. Instead, it, it emboldened those people who were buying the dollar. They ignored this bad news, and they bought the, the dollar anyway. And in fact, we got more bad news on the consumer today. We got the March uh, University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, which was supposed to rise slightly. Instead, it fell down to 91.2, which is still a high level, but it is the lowest level since November last year. And more importantly, based on what they were estimating it to be, the actual number missed the forecast by the most since February 2006. Well, that's nine years ago. It's been nine years since this number missed expectations by such a large amount. And again, you know, we're getting all these data points that are coming out where you have to go way, way back to find something as bad or as out of whack. Yet, you know, everybody is just as convinced that we've got a legitimate recovery and that the Fed's going to keep raising rates, even though the news that's coming out would suggest otherwise. In fact, even if you look at producer prices, you know, the Fed is always saying, oh, no, we can't have deflation, right? Well, look what happened to producer prices. They were looking for a gain of 0.3 for February producer prices. Instead, prices declined by 0.5. Now, again, it's not that falling prices are bad, right? I say falling prices are good. But one of the reasons that prices is falling is that the economy is slowing down. It is evidencing the lack of demand In the economy. Now, I don't think the government should do anything about it. Prices are supposed to come down if demand comes down. But if the economy was as strong as people thought, maybe this wouldn't be the case. And what is the Fed going to do? You know, they're, oh, we can't have this. We can't have falling prices, right? Because we, we need inflation. And, you know, that is the real problem of the strong dollar. You know, a strengthening currency is good in general, right? You want your currency to go up. But when you have a bubble economy based on cheap money, when you have all sorts of debt, I mean, think about the typical American who is in debt. What have Americans borrowed? Dollars. And if the dollar becomes more valuable, their debt burden is harder to carry, right? Because now they owe dollars that have a higher value than maybe the dollars that they borrowed. And if interest rates actually go up, that's going to be even more problematic because now we have to spend more valuable dollars to service the debts that we have. See, most Americans are levered up and they need inflation to bail them out. The government in particular has borrowed trillions and trillions of dollars. And by the way, you know that the debt ceiling that we suspended a year ago, I think that suspension is up next week. And Congress needs to do something to kick the can down the road. I'm sure they're going to, right? They're going to, again, feign this, well, you know, we we can't – Uh, you know, endanger the economy by, you know, threatening not to raise this debt ceiling. Or, you know, again, you know, we are already way beyond the debt ceiling because they suspended it. So I'm not really sure if you just make the suspension permanent or what do you you have to really jack that ceiling up now because we're way above it. Uh, But, you know, they pretend that it's the responsible thing to do. Uh, going deeper into debt, you know, and they raise the debt ceiling in the name of fiscal responsibility. Well, we, America always pays its bills, so we have to raise the debt ceiling, but that's not paying your bills. I've said this many times before, paying your bills is paying your bills, right? It's paying them off. They go away. It's not borrowing more money. You don't pay your visa uh, with your MasterCard. You, you write a check and, and then you settle your, your tab. Raising the debt ceiling is all about not paying our bills. If we, if we leave the debt ceiling in place, then we're forced to pay our bills, and that's the last thing that we want to do because we can't do it, and we don't want to admit that we're insolvent. So we have to raise the debt ceiling so we can continue to pretend that we can afford to pay the debt back when it's impossible. In fact, the debt is now so large, not only can't we afford to repay it, we can't even afford to service it. If we have to pay a market rate of interest, which is why the Federal Reserve has to keep interest rates as low as possible for as long as possible. So we can feign solvency as long as possible and keep kicking that can down the road, which is why, you know, the Fed is going to talk and talk and talk about raising rates, uh, but not actually do it because we can't afford to do it. But why the players in the market haven't put two and two together to figure out this box is beyond me. But the stock market, at least, has begun to decline. Now, I mentioned this is the worst couple of weeks or the best couple of weeks for the dollar uh, since the uh, Lehman days. Well, it's also the worst two weeks for the stock market in many years. I'm not really sure how many. And it would have been worse. You know, at one point today, we were down about 250, 260. But we did rally back and we had a rally into the close. So the Dow was only down 145 uh, points today, the Nasdaq only down about twenty. But remember, you know we were just above five thousand uh, the other week, and now we're back at forty eight seventy. Uh, so you know we put some distance uh, between where we are now and that five thousand level. But I think the markets are starting to brace themselves more for rate hikes. And if the Fed were to raise interest rates, the market would go a lot lower than this. I mean, this is just the beginning if we're, in fact, going to get uh, some rate hikes. Now, despite the weakness in foreign currencies or strength of the dollar, the gold market pretty much held steady these last couple of days. In fact, it was up a couple of bucks today in dollars, which means it was really up in terms of euros or in terms of uh, Canadian dollars or Australian dollars or uh, Japanese yen, British pounds. I mean, you name the currency, uh, other than the U.S. dollar, And gold was up on on the week. Also, I forgot to mention on Thursday, in addition to the retail sales numbers, we got the business inventories numbers, which were flat in January. They were looking for a slight increase, but this was the the eighth time in nine months that uh, the inventories were below estimates. But what's really important about the inventories is the inventory to sales ratio, which is now the highest it's been. Since 2008. And that is a very, very weak sign that everybody is ignoring. Why is this ratio so high? It's because businesses are not selling their products. See, in a strong economy, you actually see inventories rising, but not the inventory to sales ratio because businesses are stocking up because they're anticipating a lot of sales. So they're building up inventory, but they're also selling. And so the inventory-to-sales ratio is not necessarily moving up, even though the sheer level of inventories might be rising as businesses prepare uh, you know, to sell all their, their products. In fact, that's one of the reasons that we had the big jump in third-quarter GDP is because we had a big inventory build. But inventories have been drawing down uh, not so much because you've had all this robust sales, but because we haven't had, we haven't had the sales. And so the inventory-to-sales ratio has been falling. And what it really shows is that these businesses that bet on the consumer coming back bet wrong. They loaded up too much on inventory. And so that third quarter GDP borrowed a lot from the fourth quarter, which has already uh, been been very weak. And now, as a matter of fact, the first quarter, also this week, the Atlanta Fed reduced their – Estimate for first quarter GDP down to 0.6, 0.6. Now we haven't even got the second revision for the fourth quarter, which may very well be revised down to less than two percent. So we can have a sub two percent fourth quarter, a sub one percent first quarter. Yet Wall Street is already excusing it and blaming it on the weather. Yep, it snowed in January and February you know even though these numbers are seasonally adjusted i guess you know normally the seasons don't include the snow uh but everybody is already excusing it in fact when the numbers i already mentioned today on michigan consumer sentiment came out so much lower than expected they blame that on the weather too yeah i guess you know when it's cold and snowy outside uh you know your your sentiment goes goes down but i don't know how they blame the weak fourth quarter on the weather because we didn't really have any bad weather in the fourth quarter. I mean, I think it maybe started to get a little cold in December, but we didn't really get any snow in the Northeast, that I remember, till January. So December wasn't that bad. We did get uh, some cold weather and snow in January and February, uh, but the fourth quarter was very, very weak. But this collapse in the inventory-to-sales ratio to the lowest level uh, since 2008 that shows that the boost that we had of the economy in the third quarter, that's the aberration because people are saying again, well, you know, we're going to get another big boost. Yes, we're going to have a weak first quarter due to the weather, but then we're going to have the big boom in the second and third quarter. I don't think so because remember, the big part of the second quarter was Obamacare spending. They're not going to get that uh, for the second quarter of 2015. And the big part of the third quarter was not only more Obamacare spending, but the big surge in inventories based on the anticipation of a recovery that never materialized. It looked like a recovery, but when we got there, it was a mirage. So I don't think businesses are going to make the same mistake in the third quarter of 2015 that they made in the fourth, third quarter of 2014. So everybody who's just assuming that the weak GDP growth of the first half is going to be eradicated or of the first quarter is going to be eradicated by the second and third quarter. I think they're betting wrong. And I think the fourth quarter proves that. The weakness that we had in the fourth quarter proves that. But I think we get a weak first quarter. Maybe we'll get some small bounce in the second quarter if you know some of the first quarter weakness was indeed weather related, or we don't even know that. Maybe we'll find out in the, in the second quarter. But I think that the third quarter could end up being very weak. And, of course, the second quarter, if it's better than the first quarter, it's not going to be nearly as good as the second quarter in 2014. And all that assumes the Fed doesn't raise rates. Because think about how much air has come out of this bubble already. Think about what's happening in the stock market, just barely. But look at the real estate market. Look at the auto market. Auto sales are now starting to collapse. Look at what's happening to these numbers. Look at retail sales. And this is with the Fed just talking about thinking about raising interest rates. They're not even talking about raising them yet. And, of course, they're not raising them, right? Because they have to go from talking about thinking about raising them to talking about raising them to raising them. But if they actually raise them, if the economy is so weak at the mere suggestion of the possibility of a future rate hike, Imagine what's going to happen if they actually did it. Now, of course, raising interest rates is required. We need rates to be a lot higher. That is the first step in the healing process, but it is a painful step. Anybody who thinks we can take that step without a lot of short-term pain— Because to raise interest rates where they need to be means we prick all the bubbles, the stock market, the real estate market, the bond market. It means we have a huge collapse. We have a tremendous financial crisis that's much bigger than the one we had 2008. And it means politicians have to fess up and admit that we're broke, right, and tell all the people depending on government money that they're not going to get it. Tell the bondholders they can't get paid. Tell the pensioners and people expecting Social Security, Medicare, hey, their money's not there. That's what allowing interest rates go, go go up. That's what it means. But of course, we're not going to get any of that. The politicians don't want any of that, right? They only they only they only want to talk about raising rates because they think that it can happen, you know, in isolation where it doesn't hurt the economy. Which of course is impossible. You can't have an economy built on a foundation of cheap money. Take away the cheap money and expect the economy to be levitated in the air without that foundation. No, it implodes. But I've said that this phony economy needs to implode so that we can replace it with something viable. But there is that transitionary pain that needs to take place, but unfortunately, it won't. And so that's why I'm thinking that rather than getting these rate increases, we're going to get another round of quantitative easing. And right now, we're benefiting from the fact that the quantitative easing is taking place in Europe, as if they're the only ones dumb enough to do it. But, you know, if quantitative easing works so well, why is the euro plunging? Why can't people look forward and say, well, this quanti- it worked great in America, so why isn't all this quantitative easing going to lead to a vibrant European economy? Why aren't people buying the euro? Because they're doing quantitative easing. The, the, the fact that they're selling the euro shows that there are people who realize that quantitative easing doesn't work. Well, if they think quantitative easing doesn't work, why do they think it worked in America? And if they know it doesn't work, they should know that we're going to do it again. And we're going to do it bigger than they're doing in Europe. And, of course, right now you're seeing the insanity of it because now, you know, Germany is issuing bonds directly with negative yields. I mean, because the, the, the ECB has to go out and buy bonds. Think, why would somebody want to buy a bond with a negative yield? Right. Why would you buy a bond knowing that you're going to get less at maturity than you paid for it? Why would you do that? And knowing that your interest that you get won't be enough to compensate you for that loss. Well, the only reason you would buy that bond is because you can sell it to some bigger fool who's willing to lose even more money. And who's the bigger fool? The ECB. The ECB says, we're going to buy these bonds, and we're willing to pay this price. Okay, well, then people are front-running that trade. People are loading up on these bonds, and they want to dump them uh, to the ECB. But all of this, of course, means tremendous losses for the bank and for the European taxpayers. And right now, the losses are happening in the form of a weakening euro. But again, what I think is going to happen in Europe, everybody just assumes that QE isn't going to work in that it's not going to create inflation. See, that's where it will work. It won't work in creating economic growth or jobs. There it won't work, but it will create inflation. Now, people think, well, QE doesn't create inflation because we did it in America and we didn't get inflation here. Well, we did. We just weren't accurate in the way we reported it, right? But also, we have a huge trade deficit. The dollar is the world's reserve currency. So we can inflate, we can exp- export all of our inflation to our trading partners. It's not going to work that way in Europe. Europe doesn't have a trade deficit as a community. And the euro isn't the reserve currency. So the Europeans are going to feel it. And remember, when the dollar went down, you know the, it didn't go down relative to the Chinese RMB. So our imports from China didn't get more expensive, but the euro is plunging against the the RMB. So imports, Chinese products coming into, into Europe are going to get a lot more expensive for the Europeans. So the Europeans are going to feel a more immediate impact on consumer prices from their QE than we did in America. And that's where the Germans are going to push back. The Germans are going to be able to push back against European QE when they start to see a pickup in inflation and also... The fact that they have to pay these ridiculous prices for these bonds, the fact that interest rates have already plunged, what's the point in actually following through on QE when the market has already moved rates to a level beyond where you thought you would have been able to move them with your quantitative easing? It makes no sense. The market has already done what the ECB was going to do, their whole goal. They've got lower interest rates. They've got a lower euro. They're going to get more inflation. None of that's going to help, but they're going to get everything they want. And, of course, that's an old saying, be careful of what you wish for because you just might get it because the Europeans are going to get what they wish for and they're not going to like it. But at least they might be in a position to end it. And so I think the big trade that's going to blow up, everybody assumes – Endless QE out of Europe, it might end a lot sooner than people think. People think no more QE and rate hikes out of the Fed. In fact, what we're going to get is no rate hikes, but another round of QE. And QE4, I think, not only will be much bigger than what they're doing in Europe, but I think QE4 will be bigger than QE1, 2, and 3 combined. Hi, this is Peter Schiff. And long before foreign governments and hedge funds were buying gold by the ton, I urge my clients to put 5 to 10% of their portfolios into physical precious metals. Despite gold's massive rise over the last decade, I still think that a 5 to 10% allocation to gold and silver is a smart investment decision. But buyers have to beware. Big TV gold dealers push all sorts of coins that are poor investments. Bait and switch deals, price protection guarantees, leveraged gold accounts. These are just a few of the sleazy tactics used to swindle inexperienced gold buyers. My gold company is different. We never offer a coin or bar unless I consider it to be a good investment. I want my customers to be educated. That's why I'm offering you a free research report exposing the biggest scams and ripoffs in the industry. Download my report classic gold scams and how to avoid getting ripped off for free at goldscams.com. This report tells you everything you need to know about how to avoid losing thousands of dollars with scam gold dealers. It even tells you how to tell if a salesman is lying to you on the phone. This is a must read for anyone considering a gold or silver investment. Download this free report today at goldscams.com. That's goldscams.com.